Welcome to Tim Stodds FM, a place to share new ideas, speak freely, and continuously find ways to live our best lives. And now your host, Tim Stoddart. Hey, what's up, everyone? My name is Tim Stoddart. Welcome to Tim Stodds FM. Thank you so much for joining me. Before we get into this really important and really exciting podcast episode, I want to take a moment to thank everybody that uh, contributed to Operation Operation Congratulate Clancy. Uh, <laughs> it was like a real success. And for those of you that do not receive my daily blog every morning and just tune into the podcast, uh, I'll, I'll catch you guys up for a little bit. I have I have a colleague of mine, a teammate of mine at Journey Pure, um, a, a project that I'm really heavily involved in. And he just got his first book publishing deal. And so I just kind of wrote a quick blog post and I, I gave a, uh, a request, let's say, to email Clancy and congratulate him on the fact that he, he got signed to get his, his first book published. And, uh, and you guys really came through. I was a little bit nervous to do it because I'm thinking like, shit, if I put this out there and nobody emails Clancy, I'm going to feel like, <laughs> I don't know, really stupid and let down. But, uh, but thank you so much. It really made my day. Most importantly, it really, really made Clancy's day. Um, as you guys can read in the blog post, he's a pretty humble and, and pretty self-deprecating guy, but I know it really uh, made him feel good. So I'm doing the prayer hands right now. I know you can't see me. I am doing them. Thank you. All right, let's get into this episode. My guest today is my good friend, my brother, Mr. Devin Reeves. Devin is the co-founder and the executive director of the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition. Devin is on the front lines trying to see forth changes to our legislation on how we view drug addiction, how we view substance use disorder. Uh, More importantly, what we're going to do to solve and to address the realities of such a harmful and uh, destructive epidemic that we've seen in our society, in our lives, in our families. Universally, what are we going to do about this? He is a passionate guy, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I love him so much. He's doing the work that really matters because it's, it's one thing for people like me to, to make podcasts and to try to be public about their recovery and to have conversations, but all of it is, is for nothing unless we have people like Devin that really go in and uh, address these issues where it matters to to put pen to paper and get some of these ridiculously harmful laws changed. I have so much respect for Devin. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to maybe speak to some of his colleagues, as I'm sure uh, other people in the PA Harm Reduction Coalition are, are, are just as noble and are just as important to the cause. But when I speak to Devin, he makes me, he makes me feel like I should be doing more. And I have so much respect for him. I admire him so much as a person and as a man. He really gives all of himself to this important work that he believes in so much and that I believe in so much. And like, I know you guys, I know you guys are going to get so much out of this podcast episode. And I really, really invite you 
to share this podcast, to share Devin's message, to share the work of the of the PA Harm Reduction Coalition. And here's the deal. We all know somebody. This isn't like something that we that any of us can turn a blind eye to because it affects us all. And so it's it's important that we address this. It's important that we talk about it. And it's important that we listen to people like Devin and we support them on their cause. Please help me welcome my good friend, Devin Reeves. All right, we're doing this. Devin, Devin Reeves, thank you so much for joining me. Um, welcome to my podcast. I don't think you've ever been on my show before, have you? No, this is, uh, this is my first time and I'm really excited to be here. I'm a big fan of everything you do. Thank you so much. So uh, we're just going to jump right in because I just hit the record button and before I did hit the record button, um, I should have just kind of hit record and let you ride because you're about to go on one of those tears that you go on that I love so much about you. Um, but you were, you were talking about basically about hard truths. And for context, since you, know, you and I have a relationship and we're just going to kind of jump right into this thing, you work very closely in Philadelphia trying to solve some of the drug addiction problems and you work um, primarily within like a specific sector or a specific uh, philosophy on different ways that we can treat people that struggle with addiction. And I'll, I'll let you kind of tell that story. But um, since I have you already kind of wound up and ready to go, um, please, please tell me because I think this shit is just so important. And I think all of my followers know like how passionate I am about addiction recovery and, and, you know, doing something about all of our friends that continue to die. So please tell me about some of these harsh realities about addiction that you think people are uncomfortable to hear, maybe aren't willing to hear, maybe don't want to hear. Sure. So, Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in. Uh, my name is Devin Reeves, and I'm the executive director of the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition. And really what we're trying to do is end the war on drugs in the state of Pennsylvania. I've been doing advocacy around drug and alcohol stuff, recovery, harm reduction, whatever you want to call it, for the better part of the last eight or nine years. And for a long time, that just looked like reading everything I could and showing up to every opioid heroin town hall because I knew it was bad back in like 20, uh, 2010, 2011, when all my friends started dying, right? You know, I got into recovery in Delray Beach back in the summer of 07. That's where me and Tim met. And it didn't seem like it was on anybody's radar. And uh, here we are, 2019, and things are really worse than ever before. And we could have made a lot of changes over the last five or six years and haven't because it wasn't politically convenient or because it wasn't that big of a deal. And now we're at a real crisis and it's time to do something. And my job is to make sure that shit happens. How, how it's different for you and I, well, I don't want to say different, like singling ourselves out, but we're in a unique position in that we're still pretty young and we have, we've been in the recovery scene for, you know, the, better part of 10 years. Um, what kind of changes within that 10, in your case, you know, I, I think almost 15 years, they always seem, say never to do math in front of people, so I'm not going to, but we'll just say the better part of 15 years. What kind of changes have you seen 
with the public lexicon and their perception on what addiction is? Do you think it's gotten better? Or do you think it's gotten worse? Yeah, I mean, I think it has gotten better if we use, you know, the crack epidemic of the 1980s as one point on the timeline. You know, the public response to that, you know, the president of the United States of America got on TV with a brick of crack and said, if you use drugs or you sell drugs, you are public enemy number one. Mm. And that and that speech really set the tone for policy for the next 20 years. You know, yeah. we saw more bars, more guards, more police, the militarization of police. And now you look, for, you know, fast forward to 2015, 2016, we saw you know, America's sweetheart, Corey Monieth, die of an overdose. And we saw headlines like the new face of heroin is white and suburban. And all of a sudden, we've got police, we've got legislators, we've got key decision makers that can't wait to trip over themselves to at least present a veneer of compassion and public health in response to the people who use drugs. <laughs> I'm not uh, laughing. I'm I'm only laughing because you have an ability to you, I, you you probably have this conversation over and over again. And like you're so well educated, and it's something about you that I've always admired, and I've I've told you about that so many times. But you have like a real ability to, you know, how Einstein said like you don't actually understand something unless you can say it in like simple terms. You know, when you say these things, you always say it in just such short, direct, informative sentences. And I think that that has something to do with like why your message is so powerful because there's no hyperbole. There's no jargon. It's just kind of like, this is what happened in the order that it happened. And this is, and this is what it caused. And like, for, so forgive me for going off topic. I just, I, every time we talk, man, I always appreciate that about you. Yeah. I mean that, that, you know, that goes back to the no bullshit kind of, you know, that I bring, I mean, you know, one thing that we've seen that is good and we've really seen an embracing of uh, naloxone, the overdose medic, uh, the overdose uh, medicine that reverses an overdose. We've seen the spread of that, but you know, um, organizations have been given naloxone to people that use drugs for 20 years, starting at the Chicago Recovery Alliance, which is a needle exchange or syringe service program in Chicago, you know, for 20 years, we knew that worked. 20 years, we knew we could give naloxone to people who use drugs. And for 15, 20 years, we refused to embrace that, right? We saw a trend in 2014, 2015, where we had to change regulations to make naloxone more available. And it really wasn't until 2017, 2018, 2019, that we saw, you know, significant funding to give naloxone or get naloxone into the community. And really in a lot of ways, we haven't hit the target. We're hyper-focusing on giving naloxone to first responders, so cops, EMTs, firefighters. What we should be doing is giving naloxone to people that are most likely to witness an overdose, so people getting out of jail, people getting out of treatment, and people that are using drugs currently. And so those, those are some of the things that I'm really focusing on because it's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we're not funding it and not directing resources in the places they're going to have the greatest impact. I want to talk about this for a little bit because you touched on something that um, I'm not, I, I totally agree with your point, by the way, but just uh, almost a little bit of a segue. You mentioned giving the lots on the first responders. And um, I've spoken a lot about my dad who has been a paramedic 
in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, which is just a part of the country that's been hit really, really hard with heroin overdoses and and deaths, um, both inside and outside the city. And he, he, he tells me that it has been to the point where just squirting naloxone up kids' noses is almost like just par for the course of, of what they have to do. And, and he's also, um, he won't mind me kind of talking about this because I've been relatively public about um, a, if I'm an addiction recovery advocate, I've, I've also kind of become a little bit of like a first responders advocate just because I've seen some of the, uh, I call it PTSD, some of the psychological trauma that he's had from, you know, watching so many 20 year olds just kind of die in his arms. And, um, and I, I can imagine that in the work that you're in, seeing that happen is pretty frequent. And I, I want to know about like how you deal with that, not just on a personal level. And I'm rambling a little bit, so forgive me. But like it's, when we talk about these things, it's very easy to forget what it looks like to see people die of heroin overdoses, you know? And like you and I have both lost really, really close friends about it. And so I think it's realer for us than it is for the majority of people, although obviously not everybody. And I just, I want to get like your personal input on why this kind of thing is so important to you. Yeah. I mean, so people that are paramedics, EMTs, you know, those guys have had naloxone for 25 years. They've always had naloxone. They've always carried it on their bus. uh, And that's an important tool. But what we haven't given first responders is the, the, the tools, skills, and wraparound services to really help people that are experiencing overdose. So I do a lot of work with law enforcement, first responders, and something that I hear over and over again is, Devin, it feels like I'm just shoveling shit against the waves. Yeah. And it's just waving right back on top of me. And even uh, you'll hear the same theme from drug and alcohol counselors. I never see people get well. Yeah. I'm with them worst day of their life and it's just another Tuesday for me and we need to provide mental health support for our EMTs as well as you know follow-up programs where we're going out with a recovery coach to engage somebody in treatment engage somebody in wellness give them the tools to stay safe and information to stay safe so we don't have you know EMTs going to the same person over and over again uh, and and the other part of that is I think that there's a lot of stigma around people who use drugs, even people like your father. Like if we had somebody that we kept having to revive because they had a heart problem, there would be no judgment there. Or that same judgment wouldn't be there. And I think that's part of it. How much of a role do you think that judgment plays? Oh, I mean, it's such a huge part. You know, uh, intrinsically, I value personal autonomy when it comes to treating substance use disorder. We can't force people to recover. And we're seeing laws passed across the country where it's involuntary commitment. Down in Florida, you have the Baker Act. Mm -hmm. Uh, Massachusetts passed one. And we really don't know what these programs are good or not. And some of the research and uh, evaluation out of Massachusetts is, you know, people that are being forced into treatment are actually dying. And we're forcing them into treatment or they're dying at higher rates and we're forcing them into treatment at prisons. Prison is not rehab. Yeah. 
And in most states, we don't have enough treatment beds for the people that want to get in. And I don't know why we're forcing people to get well. We need to embrace harm reduction programs that keep people alive until they're ready to get into recovery. Yeah. Okay. So now we're talking about, now we're talking about what like is the conversation that I've been most excited to have with you. And, and I'll tell you why. When I first got sober, um, I got sober in, in, call it a fellowship. You know, I, I'm sure everybody can figure out what I mean by that. And part of the mantra behind that is abstinence. And I think that that mindset of complete abstinence from all drugs and all alcohol and all um, anything that can get you out of yourself, you know, is is the best way and the only way to do it. And I think for a lot of years, I'm speaking for myself here, but I'm also speaking for a lot of people who I know can hear this and they're going to be kind of shaking their heads saying, I relate to that. Um, I think we just didn't really know any better. And it wasn't until, you know, you, you see the same old story of how people die. And in particular, I had a friend, his name was Jason, and he was just a really, really good friend of mine. And I really like loved him a lot. And, uh, and for him, I couldn't, I just had this thing play in my head over and over and over again. Be like, I wonder what would have happened if instead of just going right back to this whole complete abstinence thing, we just give them a year. Be like, here, take, take this medically assisted treatment plan, take it for a year, give yourself a chance and see what happens. Because every time somebody died, it's because they would get completely abstinent, completely sober, and then go back for a hit and their body's not used to it. And then just, you know, that shot of heroin that you took six months ago isn't the same as taking it now after your body's just been completely like detox and you don't have the same um, tolerance. Yeah, yeah, tolerance. I was going to say stamina, but I was like, that's definitely not the right word. So, <laughs> so like after those experiences, I started really, really thinking about medically assisted treatment like a lot differently. And, um, and so anyway, like what's, uh, tell people why they should think about medically assisted treatment in a, in a different manner outside of what I've already just said. Sure. And well, really, you're talking about two different things. You know, the first thing you're talking about is we're not giving clients in rehab information about how to, re how to reduce their risk of overdose, right? We're not telling people, you know, you were shooting a bundle of dope, 10 bags when you were, when you were getting high before you came in. We don't want you to start using drugs, but if you do, Start low and go slow. Mm -hmm. If you're going to use, don't use alone. Have naloxone available and know how to use it. Teach your friends how to use it, right? Stagger your use when you use with other people in case somebody overdoses. That's part of the information that I think is vital that's not happening. In the treatment industry, we say, I have said, you got to get well if you want to survive this disease. And really, we need to change our thinking, reframe it, and say, you got to survive if you want to have a chance to get well. That's part of it. The second part, the MAT, or medication for opioid use disorder, I mean, that's simple. You know, when I get sick, I want medicine, right? My wife is a, is a nurse at CHOP, and when I get sick, I get zero sympathy because she works with kids that are missing half their hearts, right? So she's like, why don't you suck it up? And that, like, I married a nurse. I thought she was going to take care of me when I got sick. <laughs> you no, know, funny me, ha ha. But that's not the reality. 
but she doesn't understand that if I'm sick, she's going to take me to the doctor, make sure I get my script filled. And everybody across the, the universe, when they get sick, they want to they want to get care from a doctor. And that's not what we do. We don't we don't allow doctors to be part of the process. You know, having access to medication assisted treatment has been shown to cut overdose risks by almost half. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, and really, there's a lot of brain science to go into this. You know, there's all these factories in your brain that create different neurotransmitters and feel good stuff. And when you're using drugs, those factories shut down. They're like, plenty of the juice is floating around here. We don't need to create any more. Mm-hmm. Stop introducing that external dopamine and all of those things. Those factories take a while to shut, to turn back on. And MAT creates a pathway for your brain to start healing in a way that's realistic, right? That's why we see so many people who are in early recovery who are engaging in high-risk behavior, whether that's sex, uh, super sports, jumping over bridges, yep. looking for those brain hits. Yeah. Um, all right. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit because there's just a lot of really, really important stuff to talk about there. So the, the second point that you made, well, well, I think the first point, <laughs> man, it's just such a deep conversation and it's one that like I've been dying to have. So, so the first point that you made about um, kind of a stigma behind, behind MAT, like why is it that in anything else in the world, it's okay to go into a dangerous situation with a plan. Like if, if somebody is, is obese, you know, you would say, you would never tell them not to go to like Thanksgiving, you know, right. you would tell them to have a plan. Like you'd have an escape plan. You'd have like, okay, this is your meal plan, sort of speak. Um, I don't know. What, what's another example? If somebody... When you're driving in your car, you put your motherfucking seatbelt on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, another perfect example. Like maybe if somebody has anxiety and like they want to go to, you would never tell them never to go to like a baseball game. You know, you would say like when there's a lot of noise, remember to run through like these procedures, these procedures in your head and like keep perspective or whatever. What is it about addiction where we're, we as a society are a lot more unforgiving in that kind of context where it's another it's another substance to help with our substance like why are we so unforgiving about that well i mean i think it starts off of we view people who use drugs as losers and sub worthy of life so you know it's subtle how we learn that as a society right so when you're in school you get a message from the school resource officer or dare and they say be a winner don't use drugs so what they're also saying there is that people who use drugs are losers, right? Um, and then we've got laws that are made to reinforce that, right? We catch somebody with a marijuana cigarette. Uh, that's much more dangerous than actually the dangers of cannabis. And it's not that cannabis isn't dangerous. <laughs> it's that it's not as dangerous as being arrested, interacting with the police, maybe losing your college scholarship. Um, that's the dangerous part. We think that people that use drugs are losers and we very much, um, superimpose homelessness and other type of undesirable identities, right? I don't think they're undesirable society 
as with drugs, right? So you, if you ever ask somebody, close your eyes, think about, you know, a junkie or, or, or a, a wino, they'll tell you the guy in the trench coat under the bridge begging for a dollar on 95 or when you get off the Ben Franklin Bridge. They don't think about, you know, the kid from the upper middle class neighborhood. And that's why in 2014, 2015, when I talk about the new face of heroin, that all of a sudden people felt more compassionate because they connect with that person that uses drugs. And the last thing I'll add is that because so many people that are part of fellowships don't talk about their recovery outside of those fellowships, we haven't normalized using drugs or recovery. Many people don't know that recovery is possible. Okay. I, I was going to go into the second part of that original conversation about, you know, another idea behind taking your medicine. And by the way, my mom, uh, she was, you won't remember this hospital. Um, it's called MCP. It was, uh, it, it was in North Philly. She was an ER nurse. And man, let me tell you, when I got sick as a kid, it was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah like you're not going to die. So I, I, I feel you with your wife. They are, <laughs> they see real shit. So it's brutal. Um, <laughs> So, okay. Um, oh, fuck, dude. I lost my train of thought right there. What, what was that last sentence that you, that you just said? Oh, about meetings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I have been, people that are inside of fellowships, yes, there's a, there's a stigma where it's like you don't talk about, I don't want to say stigma because I think there's value to this, we'll call it a tradition to fellowships where like what happens within those private conversations stay within those private conversations. And like, I think there's value there because it, 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 it's, it provides an, a softer pathway for people to like go in because they don't feel judged, you know? However, one of the dangers of that is simply that these conversations don't leave these small rooms. Um, they don't get brought into mainstream society. And I can relate to this personally because you know, I got my start as like an online uh, marketer, let's call it, through my website, Sobernation. And like in part of that journey for me was telling my story. And it was a really, really weird experience to write a story about myself, put it in front of, you know, like 100,000 people. And then half of them, half of the people that read it, it's just being like, oh my gosh, this is so relatable. Thank you. You helped me so much. And another half, saying, I can't believe you would put this out in public. And, right. and, you know, like you get older, you get more mature and you think about it in a different way. But ultimately, my viewpoint has been that the right thing to do is to have these conversations in public. And, mm -hmm. and man, it's important. Like it really is important. And not saying this egotistical, I'll say it for you. I think it's important for young men and women, but like in your case, young men to look at you as like, uh, you know, you're got a beautiful daughter, man. Like you got a, a career that you love. You're like, you're like a shining example of what success in re recovery can look like. And if they don't know about that, then they, they, they never have something to sort of idolize. And I think there's real power in that, you know? So, um, so why? why? Why don't we have these conversations in public and, and should we have them more often? Sure. So there is an idea of traditions, you know, uh, inside 12 Style Fellowships where I will, you know, 
maintain my personal anonymity on the radio press uh radio and film right mm-hmm. there was uh some discussion of adding social media to that but it was not uh and really what that is about my understanding uh is that you can't go someplace and say i'm johnny and i go to this 12-step fellowship because you can't represent the fellowship because it's dangerous the fellowship is important it's vital it's got to be more than for just one person yeah and, you know, anonymity was created 100 years ago because people were afraid that they would be outed and that people would know and they would lose their jobs. And I just think in a lot of ways that doesn't add up because if you were a fall down, stumble drunk, people knew. You know, you made a scene at the Christmas party. You made a scene at Thanksgiving. You know, you showed up to work lit. Um, and the other part of that is, is that we systematically punish people who use drugs. That's what our laws, that's what the war on drugs is designed to do. And because we don't speak about it, we have very little political capital to fight it. So imagine if everyone who is affected by addiction, alcoholism, God forbid, mental health was vocal about that and we voted together as a block. None of these laws that are on the books would be happening. You know, we'd be the most powerful voting block outside of gender-based voting, right? Which is 50-50, more or less. Uh, And when you look at other historical movements, you know, I think the civil rights movement isn't great because it's obvious that I'm black. Yeah. You tell him, well, look at me, and he is an amazing color, and that color is called sexual caramel. You know what I mean? (laughs) I can't that, dog, right? But the LGBT movement, I think, has a better comparison. Me too. Because... A lot of people can hide their quote-unquote gayness, right? They can be in the closet. And when you talk to, you know, the leaders that survived the wholesale death of the, the gay community, uh, a.k.a. The, the AIDS epidemic, right, or the HIV epidemic, mm-hmm. they said, you know, we were afraid because we were losing our jobs. The police were beating us up. They were rounding us up in cars, right? But we did not criminalize homosexuality to the same level we have criminalized drug use. And and a lot of people said in that movement, like, you got to come out of the closet. You need to let people know that their neighbor's gay, the kid that you love. And we see a lot of parallels. So, for example, during the gay rights movement, they would say, you know, if you're gay, you can't be a teacher. And what they're doing is they're, they're superimposing homosexuality with pedophilia, right? That if you're gay, you're a danger to kids, right? Even though the two have nothing to do with each other, right? And we see the same thing with people who use drugs or even people who are in recovery. We can't put a recovery house here or a treatment center here. There's a school down the block. And you probably run into that particular problem a lot because aren't you're, I mean, you're involved with the recovery house, right? Yeah, I, I did have a recovery house for many years. I closed it not uh, not too long after I had my baby because, number one, you don't make a lot of money owning a recovery house, and it wasn't enough to keep uh, to keep me away from my family. Sure. You know, but the four years I ran it was great. We helped a lot of people, but it was another shiny example how we don't have systems designed to help people. Yeah, and then, so this this conversation is kind of, working itself out in in the perfect order because I wanted to save the biggest amount of time. Um, You know, I think we got about 15 minutes before 
uh, your next appointment. And again, man, thank you so much for taking the time with me. I really no, appreciate it. But, but you've mentioned the war on drugs a lot yeah. in this conversation so far. And <laughs> there's, there's two, two things really about America that make me angry. And I'm proud and grateful to be an American. You know, like you, you say that and sometimes people lose their shit. But, but there's two things that really, really make me angry. One of them is just the way that the lack of care for veterans when they come home. Um, that really infuriates me. And then the second one is just the war on drugs and its connection with the, the prison industrial system. Um, right. And those are, in a lot of ways, the same issue, Tim. Yeah, a lot of overlap, right? Right. Well, you know, when you're a veteran, you write a blank check up to and including your life to protect our country. And then when you come back, you're struggling with PTSD, a VA system that's not really designed to help you with yeah. the, the way it should be. You can only go to VA hospitals a lot of the times. And so many of our veterans, all the way going back to Vietnam and Korea, are these people that are, you know, for a long time, people experiencing homelessness were veterans. That's what most of them were, mm -hmm. right? People that were on the streets, addicted to drugs, couldn't get housing, couldn't get support. We failed them, right? And they get caught up in the war on drugs, end up criminalized when really what they need is like a place to live, um, you know, uh, some kind of finances and some support to get, you know, well. Mm -hmm. So then, so on that note then, like, I've never been incarcerated, so to speak, but I've been thrown in jail for like so many damn times. And all of them had to do with like petty drug offenses. Yes. Uh, like I'm having a tough time even really making a point about this because it's so obvious that what we do with our prisons is like one of the most morally corrupt things that I think has really happened in the last uh, like forever, you know, but I'm just going to let you take it over, man, because I know that you're way more involved with this than I am. And I just think it's so important for people to know that this, you know, quote, prison problem is just a lot more than like a political talking point at some kind of debate that they see on TV. You know, it's not like some kind of political porn. It's like real people with real lives who are just thrown in jail for years because they're like selling a dime bag to their friends. Right. And so, you know, really in a lot of ways, the prison industrial complex is our great shame right behind slavery. And many people say it's slavery 2.0 because we're seeing private prisons, uh, public prisons that are then selling the labor of the prisoners, yeah. you know, a penny a day, a dime a day, whatever, to go work the fields, do construction, so on and so forth. I mean, you know, what we suffer from is prohibition of drugs, right? The overdose epidemic or the opioid epidemic is not the problem. That's a symptom yeah. of prohibition, right? The deaths are a result of a tainted supply. You know, if we look in Canada, this is what they're talking about, and they're just light years ahead of us when it comes to drug policy. You know, we cannot arrest our way out of the war on drugs. Yeah. And every bill and law that we passed that was designed to do that 
is still on the books, right? Uh, so, you know, when we see somebody who is being arrested for having a dime bag, you know, we're spending $20,000 a year yeah. or however long they're there to incarcerate them. And those resources would be better spent on a social worker, a case manager, right? When you see somebody that's stealing a sandwich because they're poor, because they're addicted to drugs, we lock that person up. They need food, not jail, you know, and we are the, you know, the corrections unions, the private prisons have so much political power. They don't want to lose that power. So it's going to be really hard to stop, you know, us doubling down on shit that doesn't work. You know, it's like trying to turn a, a warship, right? It, it's going to take time. I'm sure you already know this, but it's, it's more, um, it's more fiscally responsible to send a drug addict to college than it is to send them to prison. In those four years, you'll actually save money by putting right. them, by scholarshiping them to college than you would to put them to prison for, for four years. And let me tell you, it's actually half as expensive when we start talking about adolescents because adolescent jail is super expensive, right? Uh, and it's really, it really what it comes down to. If you want to know a politician's priorities, tell him to show you the budget that he backed, right? Because uh, just like you said, if we're, if, you know, the conservative people or conservative legislators want to save money and be good stewards of our financial resources, then we should be tripling down on recovery. We should be tripling down on harm reduction. You know, um, in a lot of places in America, syringe service programs are illegal, including in Pennsylvania, in our home state, uh, on the statewide level, it costs eight cents for a syringe, right? When it costs, you know, almost a million dollars to treat somebody with HIV over their life or $80,000 to cure their hepatitis C, but we cannot fathom the idea that we're enabling somebody to use drugs. Yeah, you what know? is that? What is that like emotional block that people have where they are in the way of their own well-being not the addict but the people that if you tell somebody that they're automatically going to go like well that doesn't sound right <laughs> you know but all you got to do is explain it to them for 30 seconds however it's still going to be difficult to convince people that that's like one the morally ethical thing to do and two like the the financially responsible in order to uh, promote the living of the society as a whole, you know, right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I think that it goes back to the idea that we hate people who use drugs and don't find them deserving of life or resources. Hmm. You know, we, in, in graduate school, we had this idea of deserving and undeserving populations that people who are deserving like veterans are going to get all the resources because for all the reasons we discussed before and their resources aren't great. Right. We know that the veteran suicide rate is through the roof. But then we talk about undeserving right after veterans is single moms. Right. We really want to help single moms get well. Yeah. Right. And old people in a lot of ways, we have an entire health care program for them. You know, once you get a certain age, we give you this free health care. Right. The least deserving person is the old black drug addict. And that's the way the system is designed. Man, it just sounds so visceral when you say it like that. <laughs> but this is the truth. Yeah. You know? So. Uh, I mean, if you ever, I mean, most Medicaid programs don't even have a substance use disorder benefit. 
So if you are a 66-year-old person on drugs that's trying to get off of them, there's literally no place for you to go. It's very, very difficult. As somebody that is, call me a treatment professional, it's, it's very, very, very difficult for people with uh, government insurance to find resources. I mean, how many people take TRICARE? Hardly any. I, I, in, in the risk of seeming this be like a, uh, a shameless plug, one thing that I tell my team at Journey Pure a lot is how proud they should be that what we're doing is, is working with kind of those in-network benefits and how difficult of a thing it is because of the fact that, you know, we'll call it, we'll call it, we'll be conservative and we'll call it 70% of all of the people in the country that actually need help just can't get it simply because of insurance. And like, man, that gets me. Right. And so that's why, you know, again, to dip into the politics and again, you know, that's what I do. Like if you carry, if you care about addiction as an issue, just addiction, not all the other stuff, criminal justice reform and all that, you should support Medicare for all because then everyone has access to healthcare, right? And so much of people not being able to get well is lack of access to healthcare. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, we need to live in a world where getting help is easy as getting dope. You know, my dope dealer picks up the phone when I call for drugs. Now I may need to wait at the Starbucks or the Burger King parking lot for 30 minutes because he said he was on his way and ain't left his house, but it should be that easy. I should be able to walk into any recovery center and say, I need help. That's how it is. If I break my arm, I walk into the ER, they're going to help me. If I walk into the ER and say, I'm hooked on dope, they're like, get the fuck out. Man. So I'm curious in some of the differences that you and I have gone about our mission. I've, I've been so much more interested in kind of what we talked about before, like giving people platforms to share their stories, because I think that within itself is the, is the most important thing that I can do in the sense that I can do the most good in the, with the, the little that I have, you know, it's like the one thing that I can do that has the most leverage is I can help people share their stories. And I I feel really, really great about that. And I can't imagine, I cannot imagine doing what you do, which is trying to change some of these things in the political realm, because you probably get so angry and you probably just feel so like, like, uh, not unheard by any means, but it's, it's just so unfair, you know? And, and like, how do you cope with that, man? You know what? God bless my wife. She is my main emotional support. And my daughter, when I come home after a day getting beat up on the Capitol, beat up on the road, you know, and I come home and as soon as my key hits the door, I hear her feet jump off the couch, jump off the seat and come running into the back door to give me a hug because that's what gets me through. And the small victories, right? You know, I had a colleague of mine who went to uh, a meeting with a lot of law enforcement. Uh, he w- he's a doctor by training. He lost his license due to his substance use disorder. And he told me that in that meeting, he connected with a lot of law enforcement, right? They found a newfound belief in recovery because some of them knew him before. And you know, that storytelling, that narrative is great and it's important because it, it fertilizes the soil for change, but I'm the one that plants the seed. 
Sure. I'm the one that is giving that seed love. And I'm not saying that what I'm doing is more important than you, but it doesn't matter how great the soil is if we ain't planting seeds, fam. No, I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it all has context, right? I guess important is a tough way to look at it, but I'll be the first to admit you can scream and yell and you can march and you can have protests and all of that. But the reality is that every movement needs people on the inside because until it's actually written on a piece of paper and somebody yep. important signs it, it's, it's, it's <laughs> kind of just theory and wishes and dreams. So, so I, I really commend you for that, man. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about mobilizing people. And in a lot of ways, for 20 years, there's been a recovery movement where we're supporting people in recovery. We hold rallies recovery, you know, pep rallies for recovery, whatever you want to call them. But the next great journey is for people in recovery to become mobilized, right? Mm. When I did my very first legislative visit in, you know, 2012, right, I was shocked that the legislator, after hearing somebody's story, and being given information about why expanding access to naloxone was important, he signed on to be a co-sponsor right there, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, legislators are, they're jacks of all trades, right? They need to know about plumbing and infrastructure and highways and cannabis and the liquor control board and coal subsidies, right? They have to know about hundreds of topics. And they're maybe only passionate about five, and they should be passionate about the things in their community. But at 2019... Every legislator should have a, should go to bed at night thinking about the overdose epidemic, wake up in the morning thinking about the overdose epidemic, and it should be the, the cause of many sleepless nights. And we get that not by sharing the research or the solution, but by sharing the stories, right? That's, that's what makes it possible. And then we need people who are not just opinionated about drugs uh, and drug policy and recovery, but we need people that are informed about drug policy, that they can transmit that to key decision makers. Yeah, it's like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, right? It's like being informed is knowing when somebody else is full of shit or not. Right. Like, like, I was at a congressional event last night, and this guy was kind of feeling me out. You know what I mean? And what I want to say all the time is like, no, no, no I'm the top expert in this, in the whole state. Like, I'll take the Pepsi challenge with anybody. But you can't say that, right? And so I'm, you know, trying to, like, show this guy that I know what I'm talking about, my pedigree, so on and so forth. And then finally, I was like, listen. When you go home, instead of going on to sign on to be a volunteer with us, Google my name and go to the fourth page. And if the shit there is still dope, then you'll know I'm not fucking around. <laughs> what happens on the fifth page, though? No, nothing. It's just fire, page one through ten. <laughs> Devin. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And he's like, that's a bold statement. I'm like, I know, fam. I thought for sure there's going to be like a mugshot on there somewhere. No, it's just that I, my pedigree is deep. You know, you don't have to just look at the first page, the thing I did this month. Go deep. I've been doing this for a long time. I am informed, not opinionated. You know, Devin, I'll never forget. Um, gosh, where were we? I think it was when we had that YPR conference because oh, I'm, yeah. I've always been so insecure about being uneducated in a traditional sense. I, not so much anymore. Like I'm, I feel pretty educated, but you know, I, I, I never really went to school for anything. Um, and to learn 
and this was almost 10 years ago, to learn then that like you really decided with all the kind of chips against you to, to take that route, to go ahead and get your master's degree and, and face all the challenges that stood in front of you considering like, you know, all the places that you come from and all the places that you've been through. And even seeing like the last, um, it's probably last eight years, my guess is with the journey you've been on and like, not just the success you've had as a person, because I, that is important. And like, I'm really proud of you for all that, but like the, the success you've had about furthering the important work that you do, like, I just, I just really look up to you, Devin. I really mean that. I, listen, I, I take that compliment wholeheartedly, and it, it means extra to me because I got nothing but respect for you. And, and I think a lot of people uh, want to make a difference. They just don't know how. And I want all your listeners to know so wherever you are in the country that there is an organization like mine or similar to mine that is saying we want to make a difference, right? So get connected with your statewide harm reduction coalition. I'm from the – Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition, but there's 20 of us across the state and there's a national harm reduction coalition. And maybe there's a local drug and alcohol board that you can get involved with or a treatment center because you know what we're doing now isn't working. And if people don't get engaged, if you don't feel fired up about how broken the system is and a little bit of hope for potential for change after listening to this, you may need to listen to this shit again because it's here. The shit's fucked up. We can make it better if we get off the couch and get into the game. Well, on that note, um, I know that you mentioned the, the Pennsylvania Harm Reduction Coalition, but I'm sure there's going to be people that want to speak to you. Um, how, how can someone get in touch with you if, if, if they just heard that and they say, like, I want to get involved and not really sure how, please give them access to get in touch with you? Sure. We, know we have a website, uh, paharmreduction.org. We're also on Twitter and Insta, PA Harm Reduction, same, same uh, handle. You can also tweet at me, Devin underscore Reeves. We're on Insta. I'm on Insta as well. I mean, I'm around. You know, Google me, Devin Reeves. You can find me. You can hit me up, text me, whatever. I'm always around. I'm here to, you know, I talk to people from all over the country, whether that's a mom who lost her kid and wants to be, tell her story so other parents don't have to do that, or a person in early recovery that wants to volunteer. You know, everybody can make a difference. Yeah. And that's what we need is everyone to show up if we want to see change. I love it, man. Devin, I will put all of these links in the show notes of the article for anybody that wants to find them. Um, bro, I love you, bud. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I love you too, bro. Thanks for the opportunity. Keep up the good work. Thank you. We'll talk soon. All right, peace. Bye. Hey guys, it's me. It's Tim. One last time before we wrap up, just wanted to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave me an honest rating. Please follow me on Spotify. It's the best thing you can do to support the show. If you want to find out more, go to timstods.com. Feel free to fill out the contact form to reach out to me personally. I always respond. I appreciate you guys so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one.